0: The latest guest on the podcast is Abby Mastrocco, who most recently was a beat writer for the New Jersey Devils, the Bergen Record, my childhood hometown paper, but very accomplished writer who's covered a number of different topics. She's been a beat writer for the Mets, worked for Fox Sports West, covering the NHL, Major League Baseball, college football, college basketball. Abby Mastrocco joins us on the latest podcast. So, tell me what I got wrong here. So, Major League Baseball, NHL, college football, college basketball. Did I miss anything?
1: Uh, yeah, I mean, there was that whole uh, TV stint at Fox, and I did NFL on Fox. Um, oh, you did? Okay. I was an SID for two years. <laughs>
0: okay. At uh, Kansas, right? Kansas?
1: Kansas and um, Loyola in Baltimore. Wow, okay. Loyola, Maryland, yeah.
0: Uh, so from Folsom to long Beach to the Midwest to Baltimore to la now in New York yeah. still still in New York City correct
1: I'm still in New York City yeah I, I am I'm in Clinton Hill Brooklyn at the moment
0: uh, lovely neighborhood lovely neighborhood actually it uh, is,
1: yeah it's really nice I, I'm only here temporarily I'm, I'm just sort of uh, nobody's in town mm-hmm. so everyone's sort of left for the pandemic so and my my lease was up so I had a friend say, Oh, you know, my neighbor's not using her place. Why don't you just move in here for a little while? So I'm here for a little while enjoying the neighborhood and then I'll probably head back to California.
0: All right. Well, so let's address the elephant in the room right now. There is a pandemic There's and a- <laughs> people like you and I who work in sports until recently, that baseball starts today, but there have not been a lot of sports to cover. And you have kind of the added thing is you, you bought up like you're kind of in between jobs. So like the last three, three and a half, four months, what's that been like day to day for you?
1: You know, in the beginning when I was still working, uh, I was working for the Bergen record in New Jersey and I was covering baseball and hockey at, at the time the shutdown. I mean, it was, uh, when did, when did the, the NBA shut down? I think March 11th, cause then the right. NFL or the NHL shut down March 12th. It might be one day off, but anyway, um, I was talking to the devil's PR guy about how we were not allowed to use the locker rooms. And we, you know, I shout out to the devil's PR team because they were more than accommodating about still allowing us to do one-on-one interviews. And our concerns at the time were more of how is this going to affect our access moving forward? And I, I left practice And Corey Massasak, my my beat buddy who covers the Devils for the Athletic, was like, yeah, maybe I'll see you in four months after this thing's over. And, you know, we were kind of joking about it. And then we go home and all of a sudden it was like, oh, no, we see the news about Rudy Gobert. And we're watching everything sort of unfold um, on TV at that Oklahoma City game. And it was it became very real. So from there, I was. You know, it just happened so fast that I don't think we really had a comprehensive game plan. I mean, this is, I hate to keep using the word unprecedented, but it is. Mm -hmm. It's very unprecedented. So the next day, we're just waiting for the NFL. I'm, you know, texting people in the league office, getting radio silence, but still trying to do my job as a reporter and find out what I can dig up. Um, After that, it was, you know, the, the whole thing. I don't know that anybody... There, people reacted two ways. It was either we're going to just continue to like approach this as a normal off season and just write all of the, you know, potential free agents, trades, dr- uh, draft stories and just pretend like this isn't going on. Or it was we really have to hit this hard and write about how this is affecting sports. This is affecting athletes. I took, I chose to take that route and I submitted a, a content plan that was talking to a lot of like epidemiologists, doctors, uh, infectious disease specialists. And I had all these great stories that I wanted to write. And I was like, I, was, I don't want to say that I was excited, but you know, it sort of gets your journalism juices going. And then the reality of everything hit and it was like, you know, I can't pay attention. My attention span is very poor to begin with. Um... And it just was like getting up every day. It was like, I'm trying to, I had all these interviews scheduled and then I'm trying to transcribe and I'm trying to get myself into like a structure. I'm not, I'm used to working from home during the off season, but at that point I had just been on the road with the team. I was in the middle of the season. I wasn't quite ready to wind down yet into the off season. And um, I didn't know how to pay attention or how to like structure my work days. And from, you know, talking to other friends in the business it seems like I was not alone We were eventually we sort of structured our days around Andrew Cuomo's um, press briefings at noon on CNN yeah. every day but then it was like you kind of can't take your eyes away from the news and then it was uh, okay well I have to take my eyes away from the news and then you got to maybe turn off Twitter and try and figure out a way to you know, get, grind, grind down these these assignments, get through all my transcriptions, start writing. It was like, I, I, it'd be five o'clock and I would tell myself like, okay, you know, transcribe 20 more minutes or write 400 more words and then you can make yourself a cocktail for the night. (laughs) Um, It was, it was really difficult to uh, pay a lot of attention to sports. They seemed very, um, they, I don't want to say meaningless, but sort of inconsequential. At the time it was there were just other things to pay attention to. I mean, especially living in New York, trying to, you know, go outside and get groceries. It was like, you know, is this gonna is this gonna happen to me? Is this gonna affect me? It just seemed like there were other things outside of sports that were more pressing. So it was difficult to sort of like structure my work day and get through things in the beginning. Uh, and then in late April, I was in a pretty good groove. I was doing a lot of videos. And then I was told I was being laid off effective immediately. I wrote one more story because I wanted to write it. And that was sort of it. I, you know, I still haven't figured out how to quite structure my days because now all I'm doing is, uh, I've moved out of my apartment recently and now all I'm doing is looking for jobs and still doing those morning workouts in a living room. And that's, you know, that's kind
0: of Yeah, no, no. I mean, I mean, plus one, I was going to, I wanted to let you, I mean, plus one, because um a couple things. I mean, I you know, when it when it first came down, when I started it off, it was real productive. I was learning how to use, you know, streaming software. I was learning, you know, Pixlr, how to do graphics, and I'm I'm learning all this stuff. I'm recording a podcast every couple days, then all of a sudden Right at the end of April, you kind of hit a plateau. And I had the exact same revelation you did in that really how important is this now? I mean, this is a I mean, you you said it earlier, this is a global pandemic, you know. Yeah. Maybe, you know, the the, the data, you know, the, the stuff that we all used to consider day to day is really not that important as as the survival of people that may live down the street from you. Uh, that was and I, I live fairly close to a major medical center in Los Angeles and my, my college roommate's a physician and he would tell me these stories about people coming in and some of them weren't getting out. And you kinda like scratch your head a little bit and you're like, wow, this thing, you know, we're isolated, but this is still all raging on about us.
1: Yeah, I mean, being in New York City at the time, I was right down the street from I was living in the financial district. Uh, so I was right down the street from downtown presbyterian hospital and it was just sirens at all hours of the day constantly all hours of the night and it was almost like you when the sirens stopped it was almost that was more jarring because it was like almost the calm before another storm and you don't you know in the early days walking outside of my apartment just to try and like clear my head i you didn't see anybody and being on a New York city street like that, especially living right near wall street where I lived, that was, it just felt like a horror film,
0: (laughs) like like some sort
1: of apocalyptic film. Yeah. It was very eerie. And you know, you walk back upstairs and you, and you, you're trying to get back into normal in your little apartment and you're thinking like, okay, everything feels safe in here, but you just have this sense of like, nothing's actually normal and nothing feels very safe. And you just have to learn to like, sort of process that and go about your daily routine. And it's difficult because then you go like, you know, you'll be doing something, you'll be in a groove, I'll be transcribing or filming a video or cooking or, you know, finishing another bottle of wine. (laughs) And Mm -hmm. then all of a sudden it hits you again. And it's like, oh, I have to do this all over again tomorrow and figure out how to avoid catching this deadly virus that is apparently just in the air everywhere in New York. Great, yeah, fun. And,
0: and, and you, you mentioned, you know, the Bergen record, my childhood paper, which I kind of grew up reading. But, you know, where my mom lives, my mom and a bunch of my relatives are in Bergen County. And that was an epicenter in New Jersey yeah. as well. So there, there was that. You know, my, bro- my brother's giving me updates. And, he, you know, he's giving me, the, he's one of these guys who gives you the worst news possible, but he's very calm in doing it. And he's like, you know what? Don't worry, mom's okay. It's a bit of an epicenter here. And he was telling us, you know, this person down the street is doing the-. I'm like, whoa, Um and then obviously getting the updates you know Cuomo uh, mayor uh, 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 governor Cuomo got the national spotlight so obviously new york all the reports even out here were kind of uh, emphasized with uh, new york city but glad you seem to be riding it out and doing well i guess uh, i guess there's got to be a degree of frustration getting laid off during a situation like this um i know people kind of are hiring but they're kind of not you obviously been out there long enough where you know enough people. How is that going? Can I ask about that?
1: Uh, you know, it's pretty slow because yeah. because the state of media in general, I mean, there's not there aren't a lot of media jobs right now. Mm-hmm. And I'm this is my second layoff in five years. And I have sort of had to ask myself some tough questions. Um, especially when my lease was up and I wanted to stay in my apartment, and I did stay in there for a little while until uh, my roommates moved out without paying rent. So that was fun. Um, <laughs> wow. uh, and they both had jobs. I was the one without one who paid the rent so that nobody would get evicted. And it, it's just, there were times where it was like, I, I just would think of how quickly everything changed. It was like, it was yeah. only a couple months ago, that my life was totally normal. How did it get to this point again? Uh, you know, and then you start, sort of settling into things and you change your mindset. And it was like, all right, I, you know, now that I'm I'm moving out of my apartment, uh, I have to sort of that was sort of maybe like it had some finality. Like it was like, well, it's time to it's really time to like amp up that job search. So I reached I I took this one a little bit slower. I learned from the first layoff. I think what I did wrong the first time I was laid off was I really beat myself up thinking it was something uh, personal that I could have prevented it. And it wasn't, it was, when I was laid off by Fox sports five years ago, you know, that was part of their, the beginning of their pivot to video, they laid off all of their web writers. I was not the only one. And, and, um, you know, this time being laid off by Gannett's very similar. There were several people laid off um, nationwide from Gannett papers. This was nothing that I did wrong Yep. And I this time, I think my mindset was different. It was let's take some time, figure out what you want, figure out what's best for you and then maybe be open to some other possibilities. Uh, so I, I did not. Five years ago, I was you know immediately the five minutes after getting laid off from Fox. I was making multiple phone calls. Hi, I just got laid off. Do you have a spot on your sports team? Like I, this is me. This is my this is my resume. This is what I can do. This time it was a much slower process of, you know, let's let's figure out what's right for me to take the next step in my career. There are not a lot of jobs out there right now. I'm going to tell you that it it can be frustrating, um, especially when the government is sort of playing with your your future. And, and, you know, all the the squabbling over the unemployment and and the 600 dollars running out in in a little while this week. Um, Right. Yeah, this was the last week of it. Um, so uh, you, you just, you know, I uh, I have a lot of experience in TV and PR. And I was recently talking to somebody about a financial marketing strategist, strategist job. Um, I didn't end up getting the job because they wanted somebody who had more of a finance journalism background. But that's fine, because it it opened my eyes to something else. And, and um, I think it was a good experience just interviewing with the recruiter and talking to somebody at a recruiting company was something I had never done before. So at this point, I'm, I'm trying to stay open minded. Um, I'm trying to stay (laughs) somewhat optimistic about things. It's, it's, you know, it's difficult in this climate. And I would say I'm more of a cynic than an optimist. To right, with. right. Um, but, you know, you just have to keep, you have to just keep sending resumes out and um, looking at job boards and talking to people using your network. That's a, that's an important one because you just yep. don't know what's going to come up um, down the line. And maybe it's a contract job for now that can get me by until there is Another beat writing job that opens up in, in New York where there is a, you know, just a general assignment sports writing job that opens up and I can take a contract until then. So you just I, I'm trying to stay open to a lot of possibilities.
0: Yeah, I mean, it seems like you're taking action and it just seems like sometimes the action I mean, I, I've experienced this as well. You're taking action in one direction, and the energy kind of opens things up. And you know I've had it happen a number of times where you you know you're in a, you're, your situation changes, and you're kind of focusing your energy in one place, and then all of a sudden something from from the you know you're you're moving right, Abby, and then something from the left kind of falls in your lap for a little bit, and that keeps you going as you can continue to pursue to your right. So and and, and you know, I don't know if this makes you feel better or worse. A lot of people. I've had this conversation with a lot of people over the last three months. You know, in regard with regard to, hey, uh, is sports ever going to be like it was before? And the general consensus is that it is not. So maybe, and I've I've had this conversation with myself as well. Maybe there's other other things you should take into account when you take that next step. So uh, I, I'm I'm fairly sure that's a pretty common uh notion that a lot of people in the business are having um but let's go to let's move to more pleasant things um (laughs) i i think it was before i actually met you i think i read your byline and i saw the spelling of your name which is a b b e y for those who don't know i know a lot of people misspell it particularly on social media (laughs) um were the parents beatles fans is that is that a fair jump to make or was that just like a family name
1: no parents were definitely beatles fans yeah that's why they agreed on that spelling Um, (laughs) my parents are about like eight, nine years apart, but, um, so the two bands that they have in common were, um, the Beatles and Fleetwood Mac. And they did toy before they, they didn't know whether I was going to be a girl or a boy. And even before, you know, they just, they wanted to, they wanted some, like two names that could go for either a boy or a girl. And the one that they, they first came up with was Stevie after Stevie Nicks. Um, and then I think they were like. You know, given her her past history and her drug problems, maybe we shouldn't name maybe we shouldn't name our kid after (laughs) that. Um, And uh, like one, I guess the story was like one of my relatives had just returned from London. My grandparents had like sent my parents a postcard from London, and with like Westminster Abbey on it. And uh, they didn't like Abigail. They thought it. They liked. They were thinking they needed, like, some sort of unisex name. And then they were like, ah, screw it. We'll just name her after a Beatles album <laughs> if if it's a That's girl. They didn't great. have a name for a boy. So <laughs> they got lucky out of that one.
0: Perfect. So here's the transition. I feel like James Lipton here. Um, <laughs> Abby, tell me about Vincent Mastrocco. No, I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> I would like to talk about your dad because he is, you know, he worked in sports, still works in sports. I believe he's still doing the golf podcast and sports writer, sports broadcaster. How much did that influence you growing up? Were you kind of, you know, were you kind of at daddy's uh, at dad's uh, <laughs> side, you know, kind of watching him go through this? Um,
1: sometimes, yeah. I was in the radio station a lot. My dad had a he had a golf radio show for 20 years. He he's no longer doing the actual radio show, but him and Scott Marsh, who I know you know from UC Davis. Um, UC Davis yes. basketball him and Scott do a podcast hor- once a month I think um I just to kind Scott of Marsh, say hor-
0: horrible 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 man Abby horrible horrible yeah. man no, I'm kidding <laughs> very, very very good guy very good guy
1: um yeah Scott Herman Scott Marsh do a podcast um I I think it's only like once or twice a month that they've been doing it uh Scott's been pretty busy with UC Davis and and King stuff but um I was Yeah. I mean, I was in the radio station a lot growing up. Um, My dad at times would bring me in and just sort of put me to work. I I don't know. I don't know that I necessarily showed an interest in wanting to do the work as much as it was, well, I need somebody to help me. So you're going to come in. And I think because the show is so early on Saturday mornings, my dad was trying to keep me from like going out with my friends on Friday and getting into trouble, like towards my high school (laughs) years. (laughs) But I was always at golf tournaments, like um, PGA tour events, or there was a senior tour event in Sacramento for years and years that I used to go to when I was a kid. Um, the celebrity golf tournament in Tahoe. My brother and I would always compete to see who could get Michael Jordan's autograph, and neither one of us ever succeeded in getting that one. Um, mm-hmm. So I was always around the radio station and golf. And then, um, you know, in college, I decided to major in journalism because the only thing I was ever good at in school was, was writing, reading and writing. I can't do math. I can't do science. And, um, I decided to be a journalism major. My dad said, well, great, then I'm going, then I'm really going to put you to work now. So I was able to go to a lot of PGA tour events and like, um, you know, help him set up and break down for his show. And, uh, eventually I was out at those PGA tour events and I started writing to editors and saying, can I freelance for you? And most of the time they said yes. So, (laughs) Uh, I, I had a lot of experience just being out at golf tournaments as a kid, but you know, it's, it's, it's uh, unfortunately my, I never really picked up the skill. I was around a lot of golf growing up and my short game is really terrible. It's, I don't know how that works. I don't know why that, that doesn't translate mm-hmm. somehow.
0: Yeah. You know, yeah. Like by osmosis, right. You know, you, yeah. you <laughs> figure out the torque of everything by osmosis, um, now, I, 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 you, did you, I know you did a, a road trip with your dad to Cooperstown a couple years ago, correct? We did, yeah. Yeah. We did. Take me through that. Was, what was that? that? Was that something that you guys had planned for a long time? Was something spur of the moment? How did that come about?
1: He had breast cancer in 2009. He was diagnosed with breast cancer um, right around my 23rd birthday, and I was um, graduating from Long Beach State, and Uh, So, you know, he he had a full male mastectomy, which is quite an invasive process for a woman or a man, but for a man especially. Mm -hmm. Um, And he did chemo and I was moving to Baltimore at the time. And uh, he had hoped to be able to move me to Baltimore and go see a game at Camden Yards. And that didn't happen. And then I moved to Kansas and he. Was still he was done with chemo by then, but he wasn't able to get out and visit me and see a game at Kauffman. Like my dad wants to see a game at all, at, you know, all 31 parks. At, like like many baseball fans do, that's uh-huh. sort of the dream. So um, he was finishing. He was going into remission in 2014, and my mom said, "You know, what do you want to do to celebrate? Let's go on a vacation." should we go to Italy? My dad, you know, being Italian and having family in Italy, she said, should we go to Italy? And he said, I think I, w- I want to go see some baseball parks. That's, that's something that I, I guess when he was sick and he was wondering, you know, am I going to survive this? Mm. He thought to himself, I haven't seen enough baseball parks. And that's something that he really wanted to do. He said, I want to go see some baseball parks. And my mom said, well, I don't want to do that. I mean, my mom thinks they hit home runs in football. Like she, she doesn't <laughs> know. <laughs> She didn't really want to do it. And he said, fine, I'll do, I'll do I'll take Abby. And at the time I was working for Fox and I was able to get credentials and, um, you know, be, or being part of the Baseball Writers Association, I was able to um, sort of drop in and do some work as well, which was convenient because my dad and I were at um, Fenway Park when Garrett Richards uh, tore his knee up. And I get a phone call about 10 minutes later. You still in Boston? Yeah, yeah, I got it. It's all right. I'll, I'll handle that tomorrow. Um, we did, he's from upstate New York. So we started off in upstate for a couple nights, staying with my great aunt, uh, in little falls, New York. And then we went to mm-hmm. Cooperstown and then we took the train down to the city and we saw um, a Mets game at City Field. We saw a Yankees game at Yankee stadium. And then we went up to Boston. We saw two games at Fenway. I did a little bit of work while I was there. Um, kept score as he always does. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And then we, we took Amtrak all the way down to Philly. We saw, we were in Philly and we saw a game there. And then we didn't end up getting to go to Camden Yards. We ended the trip in DC, we ended the trip in Washington. Uh, It was one of Tim Lincecum's last starts with the Giants. And my dad being a a lifelong Giants fan and um, being a big Tim Lincecum fan he wa- really wanted to see, he really wanted to end the trip with a Giants game. And um, we were, I kept telling him, I was like, there was like a four hour rain delay. I was like, it's just going to get rained out. It's just going to get rained out. And he's like, I'm I'm watching. This is going to be Tim's last start with the Giants. I'm watching this game. Sure enough, we waited it out for a long time and he did see that start and Tim went to come imploded and it was not great, <laughs> but um, you know, it was a really fun trip. Uh, I showed him, I, you know, Got to show him where I used to work in Baltimore, and um, I had just been in New York at the time. This was in 2014. I had just spent all, a bunch of time in New York for the Stanley Cup playoffs, so I sort of had the lay of the land with some of the pizza, place I want, pizza places I wanted to take him to and all that. So that was his um, remission trip.
0: Well, that's fantastic. That's a great. That's a great uh, anecdote, and I'm glad you guys had a had a trip. It seems like you had a tremendous time. You got baseball, you got Cooperstown, you got the Stanley Cup. That's that that's fantastic. Um, all right, New York. You're in New York. You worked in the New York media. Now they say, and I I, I do believe this, <laughs> it takes a different type of player to play in New York. You know, sometimes the great player at a different place isn't going to be a great player in New York. And sometimes the marginal player in a market comes to New York and all of a sudden it's like, where has this been, you know, the whole time you've been in the big leagues? Um, I do think there's a degree of that in terms of the media. you got to be a certain type of person to be in the New York media. You did it for a while. You navigated it fairly well. Is there a difference? Is it, is it really what the, hype, uh, what the hype is made up to be?
1: Yeah, there's a difference. <laughs> because you've got, you've got the tabloids here. And you've mm-hmm. got, um, you know, the Post sends a whole army to one Yankee game. They send like five people to one Yankee game and they'll send three on the road, even just for, you know, the, a Met series in Milwaukee. And the Post editors are calling their writers wanting these back page headlines. And then the Daily News has got to keep up with that. And then you've also got the New York Times trying to sort of ask these like, these questions that are working some like really off the beaten path angles and you've got the two jersey papers with the beat writers you've got the tv stations and it 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 sort of all stems from the tabloid culture that has existed here for so long and i don't want to say that like every other writer has to fall into it but there is a certain there's things that in new york become a big deal and become sort of uh they blow up on twitter or they blow up on social media that might not blow up in other places. I mean, in LA, it's so such a laid back atmosphere that some of these things don't, they're just not as big of a deal in other places. And that was a little bit of adjustment for me. There were times where I was like, why is, is I'm trying to think of some specific instances, but I can't really off the top of my head. It was like, um, uh, oh, here's a perfect one. You know, Addison Reed, um, former Mets pitcher, Apparently he was yelling at somebody in the dugout one day and it was caught on the SNY cameras for a split second we were in Atlanta it was caught for like a split second and um, it, it became an entire it became a thing it was Addison Reed brawling with teammates in the dugout and and I was sort of admonished for my headline which I, I was too it was you know it was did Addison Reed get in a dust up in Atlanta? And I was admonished for that headline because, oh, you need to blow it up. You need to, you need to make it seem like they're, you know, he was screaming at a guy. He was, he was screaming at a guy. And it was like, I mean, only for a second. And he, that's, he's kind of a fiery guy. We don't know whether he was screaming. Uh, they want it. The way that it sort of looked on the outside was that he was screaming at Terry Collins for taking him out of the game. That wasn't the case. He was, mad because he threw a bad pitch so to right. us we're there in atlanta and we see that that's what we see and we're thinking like oh yeah he's, he's mad because he threw a bad pitch but to everybody else and to the people watching you know, the editors watching um in their newsrooms back in in new jersey or new york or long island or wherever it's you know uh they see it blowing up on twitter and they say oh you need to need to put out something right now and need to go ask addison reed why he's pissed at terry is there some long-standing feud because in the new york media there's always a long-standing
0: feud. of course <laughs> new
1: yeah. yorkers aren't happy unless there's a fight and on yeah. the west coast that's just it, at, on the west coast if that had happened we probably would have it probably would have I don't know, it would have come out a few innings later, I'm sure, but it may not have blown up on Twitter the way it did if it was a Dodgers pitcher or, you know, maybe if somebody's screaming at Mike Trout in the dugout, that's different. But if it's just, if it's your setup guy who's, who's angry in the dugout, I don't think it's that big of a deal in LA or Anaheim or San Francisco. It, you're going to obviously ask about it and you're going to ask, you might even, if it's caught on TV and it's that clip is trending on Twitter, then sure, you're probably going to put up a post about it just to get it out there but it it wouldn't be automatically um, assumed that there's some long-standing rift with the pitcher and the manager who the media has forever said that he can't manage a bullpen so it's it it, um it's, it's intimidating for some guys out here I mean there's in the Yankees locker room after before and after every game I mean there's I don't know, 30 media members sometimes. Yeah. And there's a lot that travel. That's, uh, that's a, that's a lot. Um, as opposed to, you know, a, a, the Brewers locker room where there's, you've got your beat guy and you've got your MLB or you've got your, you know, newspaper beat guy, your MLB.com beat guy. You've got a few TV guys, a radio guy, and maybe a social media person. It's, it's, uh, it's, a, it's, a, it can seem very intimidating and very intense. Plus, there's all that sort of, um, you know, allure and the mystique of Yankee stadium. And, uh, in, in over in Queens, it's it, with the Mets, it's like everyone's just waiting for you to screw up. <laughs> yeah. Mets. yeah, And that can be a lot of pressure on guys <laughs> as well. Yeah. Uh, it is a different <laughs> place. And some people just absolutely love the, the energy of the place, like Pete Alonso, perfect guy for New York and perfect guy for the Mets right now because he doesn't really buy into the like waiting for him to screw up type of thing. He doesn't care. He's just such a, a passionate guy, and he's such a genuine, hardworking person. And he like he loves talking to the media. I mean, he was showing me how to do a handstand one day. How he does a handstand one day. Like he's not yeah. intim- he's a chatty Cathy. He's not intimidated by yeah. anybody. He's a yeah. perfect guy for the Mets. Perfect, um, yeah. Perfect
0: energy, yeah. Yeah. yeah.
1: But then you see some of these guys come play in Yankee stadium and it is a little bit intimidating. I don't blame them, yeah. especially some who struggle may struggle with English.
0: Um, you know, you brought up the Mets. So I gotta, I, I and, and, you know, you, New York, the media, obviously you mentioned it's such a, it's such a, you know, there's so many people it's, there's so they're, the intensity is all, you know, is amped up. Um, and obviously you went in there, you handled it professionally. Uh, I knew you were going to be okay. When I saw how you handled Mets, Twitter, And Mets Twitter is a real thing and people don't, you know, if you're not really, I mean, I guess people on Twitter know now, but if you're not from New York, you know, I grew up, you know, WFAN was the Mets station when I was a kid. And then, you know, Beningo and Evan, you know, like they live and die with the Mets and people, the Mets are really big and Mets Twitter has been a thing, and there's a lot of stuff. Like a lot of the Mets Twitter has nothing to do with the Mets. Obviously, you know that. Um, yeah. <laughs> what now You were the Mets beat writer for a little bit. What's the experience like? How would you? It's, to me, it's like kind of like it's like going into your mosh pit at a punk show for the first time and trying to figure out you know how to survive when you got all these people crashing into you.
1: I didn't understand it at first um, mm-hmm. because the West Coast and the East Coast are just two completely different places. But I actually really love Mets Twitter now. I love jousting with them a little bit, and they—I'm yeah. so snarky and dry that that does not always come off on Twitter. But there were a few who instantly recognized, like, oh, she's just being sarcastic. The the thing about Mets Twitter—they are so self-loathing <laughs> because they constantly question their Mets fandom. What am I doing with my life? I'm a Mets fan. You know, the Mets are playing. The Mets have two guys that they left in Queens and they refuse to put them on the injured list and they're playing shorthanded in an 18 inning game on the road. Like why am I a fan of this team? (laughs) Um, It's just, they they're so self-loathing that, that sometimes my, my um, sarcasm played very well with that crowd. Um, Sometimes it didn't, Uh, (laughs) but I, I don't know. I just, I find Mets Twitter, I enjoy them now. I did. Yeah. I definitely had to get used to it. Um, and there were some people who really tried to challenge me, and they wanted to see. There were some people who wanted to see if I, a, a new reporter, could come in, and I don't know, make a difference on the beat. And and the thing about some of these fans on Twitter is that they think that um, they have power
0: to right.
1: force their teams into certain decisions. They think that they if they just spam the team account. I saw this a lot with Devils Twitter. If they spam the team account with you know fire the coach, fire the coach, fire the GM, trade for right. this guy uh that it'll work and the team will cave and do it. That's you know that's it's really nice to think that you can do that but this is not a democracy. No. <laughs> Sports are not democratic. Yeah. Um and they in New York You know, you know how it used to be in, I would say before the advent of the internet, where a columnist could write something that was sort of uh, scathing enough to force a team into some sort of decision. And that's not necessarily the case anymore. It might have been during like the peak tabloid era, but that's, That's just not how it works anymore. Um,
0: Yeah, it, it it would depend on the relationship with the owner too. Yes. you know, or the you know there were executives who would leak through certain guys yes. to get an idea of what the you know what the feeling was on the street. And you know I've read you know like I, I you know grew up obsessed with Billy Martin. I read all those things about just all the manipulation from everybody in every angle. But yeah, no, it, it, what what I find interesting is is I do think the fans have have a little bit of power, not in terms of the teams making decisions. But in teams of, in terms of certain areas of perception, and a big thing, you know, I'm, I'm a Yankee guy. It's the whole notion of a true Yankee, you know. Yes. Uh, and it, it's it, let's be honest, it's silly, but I do see the point in the reason that a lot of the, especially the newer media people, are threatened by it is that's entirely a fan's thing, you know. Maybe a long time, you know, beat writer can influence that, but there's certain things that only the fans can really influence. Right. None of them tend to be consequent, you know that all that consequential. Yeah, uh, it's it's an interesting relationship, and I think that I think you were kind of in this group. The people in the media who understand how that works generally do pretty okay with it, but if you're going to try to come in and and strong arm, you know whatever fan base it may be, you know the whatever the seven line army or whoever it is. Yeah. <laughs> that, that's going to get you in a little – I mean, uh, trouble is a strong word, but that'll get you – you'll get to joust a little bit on social media.
1: Yeah, and I definitely did. Um, and you know, to your point earlier, there are still executives who leak things, especially in New York with certain reporters just to see the oh, response yeah. of things. But um, – <laughs> Fans really wanted me to write stories from certain perspectives and certain angles, ripping this guy or, you know, calling for Terry Collins to be removed or Mickey Calloway to be removed or whatever. And um, I'm you know, that's not my job as a beat writer. I, I have a, I have to have a relationship with Terry Collins uh, and I have to talk to him every day. I'm not going to sit there and, and rip him because the fans want me to the mm-hmm. columnists maybe have a little bit more sway. But I felt like there were a lot of fans who wanted me to come in and sort of um, write things based on their sort of perception of the team, and I didn't always do that. And there were times where, uh, you know, I I I talked with some of the Seven Line guys. We've DM'd a little bit here and there, and they've been somewhat complimentary of my work. I there's this perception with some of the really, really diehard fans, and I definitely experienced this with Devils fans immediately as well, um, they want you to be real rah-rah. And I think sometimes this might be a double standard with women because um, they don't always expect, fans don't always expect men to be cheerleaders of the team, but women need to be cheerleaders of the team because they say, well, you know, clearly you don't care about your job. Uh, there's millions of people who would love to step in and do what you're doing. That's I really hate that. I hate yeah. when fans bring it up. I hate when bosses say it to you i mean there was that article in the washington post last week about the washington football team who you know we're not using their name anymore uh, yeah. and sexual harassment that had gone on and some of these women were afraid to report any of it because they said you know if if you don't want this job there's a million people who will step in and do it and i think sometimes the the east coast fans are so passionate that they need their they need you to be just as passionate. But my job is not to have passion. My job is to, you know, write good stories and report information that's that, that's relevant to yeah. what the fans want to hear or need to hear.
0: Yeah. I, I it's it, and that brings up so you're not employed now, so it's perfect perfect question I can ask you. <laughs> um do you think it's gone too far? I mean, I I recall as a kid, I mean, George Young won two Super Bowls as general manager of the Giants in 86 and 90. And I, I remember I was driving one day and – Russo and Francesa have him on, and the Giants weren't doing well. I think it was Handley's second year. might have been Dan Reeves' first year. I think it was Handley's second year, and they weren't doing well. And they're ripping this guy to his face on the air, like literally laughing at him. And they, the, the three of them had a relationship, so I know they probably got a little more latitude than most people would. But I can't imagine that happening today, even if somebody had a relationship because just the public perception in all levels of media is so important. You know, in 1992, it's a little bit of audio; it gets played for three days, and you're done. In 2020, that thing is is video enhanced. The video is on the internet. The video is, is going around for weeks and weeks and weeks at a time. H- has the tenor changed? And just in the, like you've been doing this for like ten years now. Has the tenor changed with regard to that? Not necessarily having you be a cheerleader, but it just seems to me, particularly at the professional level, uh, teams are a lot more protective of that with reporters. you know. And, and, and if you don't kind of play ball, you sometimes won't get that access.
1: Yeah. Uh, what you see now is teams that have – you know, all their own reporters, um, hockey and basketball have their own whole like content divisions. MLB.com is their own separate entity and they have staff writers for each team, um, that are not employed by the team, but by MLB advanced media. So that's a whole different format. Um, you see the teams hiring, hiring their own in-house content people for two reasons. One, there is a lack of coverage, on the road these days because newspapers are obviously at uh, they're not, they're not in great shape. Let's be honest here.
0: Financially. Because,
1: yeah. Yeah. So they've been, so the, the easiest thing to do to save money is take people off the road. Well, the teams still want the attention and they want the publicity when they're on the road, especially in, in small markets or teams that are sort of overshadowed in a big market in their own market. So they have all their own in-house people that they'll travel with and they'll put content up on the website. And that's great. Because that that does you you get to showcase all angles. Those are uh, the in-house people are great at for some of the um, like charity stories that I can't always get to. You know, I tell players when I when I start covering them, if I can get to your charity event, I will. But I'm not always able to get to every charity event Mm -hmm. uh, just because of my own workload and my own, you know, personal things. Right. And um, but I do. But charity events are a, a great way to sort of humanize a player and show that they're not just X's and O's. Um. I. But I, I. can't always make it to some of those events. So you've got your in-house content people who are really great at doing some of that. They're good at producing a lot of the the more I don't know fun, lighthearted stuff that fans fans want to see. In terms of some of the other. You just you see that you see that the teams want to control their narrative, and it's difficult to do. And they get sort of frustrated when they're not able to do that anymore because they're they're, they're developing on put, putting all these resources into their own content team and being able to control the narrative. and then they they sort of want to see that the other reporters are, maybe walking that same line that their content people are not all teams. I will say not all teams are like this because in New York, they know that no matter how many in-house people they have, there's, you're still going to get, you know, every hockey team is going to get Larry Brooks writing a column about them. Right. Uh, every baseball team is going to get Joel Sherman breaking news. Uh, that's just how it works. You can't control what the post and the daily news or, or you know, even me at the record or the ledger, you cannot control every single thing that we're going to write and uh, I think that athletes feel a little they're hesitant they they don't know whether they can trust us or not that's why relationship uh, that's why being on the road and being in the locker room is so crucial to this job and we were so upset and worried about our access being taken away early on before this was a full-blown pandemic when they Mm -hmm. said no open locker rooms um we were really concerned about our access being taken away because that's how you develop relationships and that's yep. how you get players to trust you. And it's a mutual relationship. I've got to be able to trust this player as well. Yeah. You know, I, I I want him to know he can trust me to tell his story, but I've I've got to know that he's not going to go, you know, run to the PR guy if I ask him one one controversial question. Like this is this should be a a good working relationship. It's a it's a two way street.
0: Yeah. We were so
1: being on the road in some of these like tough games and tough moments. um, That's when you build those bonds with guys and I'm friends with some of these players too. I mean, not a ton of them because I don't like to mix work and pleasure, but, but that's just how it is. When you've covered guys for a while or you cover that, you just, you talk every day and you develop sort of a friendship. And Mm -hmm. I, I, I understand how, how and why teams operate the way that they do wanting to control their narrative. Uh, I just hope that, you know, this pandemic does not completely decimate all of our access, but then again, it might not even be the teams, um, you know, taking away our access. It might be our own papers taking away our access by not sending us to certain events or, um, you know, not putting us not sending us on the road i understand there's budgetary constraints and things like that but um cutting pay and and hiring young reporters who are not um experienced enough to be on pro beats that's that's going to be a big one we're already seeing that at some papers hiring a 23 year old to cover um a beat when you know when his only experience or her or her only experience is maybe an internship or covering high school sports um you get in a little bit over your head sometimes because you don't have the budget to hire an ex- an experienced beat writer and you end up with somebody that you either have to train or somebody who's just not ready for the job that we could end up seeing that as well. Um, I, I think I still think the best way I will say this until the end of time, the best way to learn how to cover sports is to cover high school sports for a little while. Yeah. Um, and I don't know that that's going to happen quite as much. I, yeah. There's going to be a lot of changes to this business and not all of them yeah.
0: good. I mean, you bring up a great point and I want to, I want to, I want to emphasize something you said about relationships. Uh, the best advice I ever got getting into play by play is a guy told me, you want to, you want to be a good play-by-play guy. You need to go to practice. And he said, it's because at practice, people are a little bit looser, you know, th- they're on an agenda. So the, the, the plan is laid out, right? and the, the, you see you see them basically kind of a little more relaxed and he said more importantly they see you and yes. you're just relaxed and ch- and that's almost more important than you seeing them relaxed um, the you make a and you make a great point about high school sports and and so i mean the athletic is doing great things and if the athletic wants to hire Abby Mistraco go right ahead and do it and <laughs> i'm sure you do a great job but it's interesting i am not subscribed to the athletic because what i did is I took that money and now I subscribe to, you know, cause I'm covering high school football. So I subscribe to the long beach, uh, press telegram. I've subscribed to the Riverside press enterprise, orange County register, LA Times, simply because they're kind of the final frontier with actually having high school writers. Because as you know, you went through that layoff at Fox sports. A lot of these smaller papers decimated their local coverage and to me, I think what's important, like you're saying, as you're coming up and trying to learn stuff, that local coverage is just so vital because they may have something that's not, that's not going to you know end up on the wire or any kind of a bigger story. You know, their, you know, Their great-grandfather maybe played with Ted Williams in the minor leagues. That's something really important at the local level, maybe to a local writer that might not be as important as it goes up the food chain.
1: Yeah, it's th- things like that. But um, you know, I gotta sh- I gotta tell you one more to add to your subscription list is the 562.org org because they That's are, right. they do yeah uh, they do such an amazing job covering Long Beach sports and and the role that Long Beach sports plays like in the Long Beach community because Long Beach is just such a unique place. Mm-hmm. Um, they JJ and Mike do such an, an amazing job. They do. Um, we were like college newspaper rivals they worked for the independent student newspaper and i worked for the faculty student like the faculty run student newspaper and Mm -hmm. then we ended up coming together and working together years later and i just like those great those guys are so great and they love long beach so much and they do such a great job um hitting every single like every sport every school in long beach like you definitely subscribe to them but uh, i think high school sports are so important to learn how to report because you actually learn how to report You have to keep your own score. You have to figure out, you know, where these guys are. You've got to where they're transferring to. If they're transferring, you have to figure out you've got to. You can't just do. I don't know. Covering a high school football game like you've got to go go approach the coach yourself. Yeah. You have to go then yep. approach the coach, your player. There's nobody holding your hand and saying, let me get this person for you. Let me get this person for you. And then when, you know, recruiting comes around, you're talking to, you're seeing which coaches are at high school games and you're talking to these kids. Okay, who's offered you and who's, you, you just, like you actually learned to report. You you do a feature and you talk to their parents. You do a feature yeah. and you talk to their their grandma or something like that. And like you said, you learned like, Oh, that's how grandpa p- played for Ted Williams. And yeah. that's how this kid, that's how, you know, what are the people naming their kids these days? Uh, Kale or Tyler, Tyler. Yeah.
0: It's funny. You bring up grandmas in college, in college baseball. I've gotten more information from grandmas <laughs> than I had from any, I, I'm not even, I'm not, I mean, I'm kind of half joking, but I'm really not. Whenever, you know, grandma comes up and talks to you, you listen to grandma. Cause grandma will tell you, She will tell you what you need to know, and more importantly, she will tell you everything the player does not want you to know.
1: Yes. (laughs) He broke up with his girlfriend. That's why he had a bad game, or he got a D on a test and he may not be able to play next week. Well, what's that going to do when, you know, UCLA's coach is out there looking at him for next game? Um, Like, college sports is truly how you learn to report and so when you go into a more profound like a when you go in or high school sports when you go into college sports or um you know professional sports if you're going into a baseball locker room for the first time uh you're gonna know how to just walk up walk up to somebody in an open locker room and approach them because that can be a little bit intimidating in college you have sids who just kind of get everybody for you and Um, and the SIDs would prefer that in college. Whereas in professional sports, like it's on you to make these relationships on your own. It's on you to ask for players, phone numbers. It's on you to ask for, to ask the assistant GM for his number. And you know what this guy's contract, what this loophole is in his contract. It's on you to form all of these relationships. And you do that well in high school sports, because you're generally covering a guy for a couple of years. And like you said, you get to know grandma, you get to know mom yeah. and dad. It, you really do learn how to cover, how to report in yeah. high school sports. You well, really I, learn how to report.
0: And I'm sure you've dealt with this too. What I like is now, I mean, I've been doing high school sports for almost 10 years now, but about, you know, three or four years in, you don't have to ask anymore cuz people who know you're credible they'll start telling you stuff you'll get text messages oh so and so is leaving this job and they're going to take this other job and you're like wow how is that person leaving that you, know, you find out oh they're going to coach their high school alma mater or they're moving you know their grandma's sick or their mom's sick so they need to be closer to home Blah, blah, blah all this stuff and the the information kind of comes to you but yeah it's uh, you're uh, you're 100% right it it's this it's you know it's um it, 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 it's training, you know. It just goes from. Remember when you're a kid and you're learning to drive, you have to think about everything you're doing. You got to think about your seatbelt and the mirrors. And then after you've done it for a while, it's all automatic. And I feel kind of the same way with regard to reporter skills. Is if you learn to do it right when you start, as you get more into it, everything. Play by play was the same way. If you eliminate the bad habits early, you never develop them as you as you get further into it.
1: That's yeah, that's a good point. I mean, you're always going to make mistakes. You just have to make sure you don't keep making the same ones. I mean, I've written a lot of things that I I really wasn't happy with, or I let people convince me to write things that I didn't want to, I didn't want to write, and I felt like I shouldn't write and I should have spoken up. Um, But you, you know, you don't want to, you just don't want to make those things habits. Yeah, that's. I think you can you can make a lot more mistakes in high school sports, though, than you can in professional sports, because uh, if you're in a hockey locker room and you make a you know, you 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 make one awkward comment to a guy and he might be kind of moody and decide not to talk to you again. Whereas in high school sports, you can learn how to you you, may, you, you learn how to push people's buttons and what or what do, what pushes people's buttons and what doesn't a little bit better in high school sports and you can move on because they're teenagers and they forget those things But by the time they're pros, you know, you really, you're always kind of like learning and growing and your interview style changes a little bit here and there, but, but you just, by the time you get to a pro locker room, like you should know how to, I don't know, talk to, talk to these guys for lack of a better term. Uh, Mm -hmm. You just should, you should know how to handle yourself and um, approach them. And you have a certain sense of professionality at that point. And you develop that in high school, covering high school sports or college sports, too.
0: Give me me a little bit on your experience covering the Devils. Um, I'm interested because that was my childhood team. And the Devils, (laughs) the Devils fan, not quite as crazy as a Mets fan base, but it's kind of a, you know, New York is a ranger town. And then the Islanders, you know, kind of the old school fans kind of are still into the Islanders because they won those cups in the 80s. But it was weird. I think, you know, you just started on the Devils beat. And a friend of mine, a longtime friend of mine, guy i gone to high school with, sends me a Devil's article, and your byline was on it. I'm like, well, you know, this is just like all the worlds colliding, right? Like yeah. he's <laughs> picking this, st- sending me information that you'd you'd source. So, you know, like the Devil's fan base is also very different. Like you mentioned, they can be very intense. I mean, they're from Jersey oh, yeah. after all. <laughs> um, and, but the interesting thing that I, I found is the organization, obviously, ha, is, still is, kind of was at a crossroads, kind of in the post-Lamarillo era, to where they're really like almost kind of treading water, trying to find their footing again.
1: Yeah, so Lou left the team in pretty bad shape in terms of cap. Um, you know, he he took a little, he's obviously, he, he figured things out with the Rangers, or with, not the Rangers, uh, the Leafs, and now he's doing a great job with the Islanders, but the post cap era was a little bit difficult for Lou um, to navigate I think he but but you know he he' had signed all these guys to these giant contracts which is what you did before the salary cap yeah. and they were aging and they they were just in a bad uh, bad spot financially they really needed to start over um, they hired Ray Shiro to work alongside Lou but Lou doesn't really Lou likes to yeah. Like, you're not, you're not <laughs>
0: hiring Luke. Like that's like, you know, having Sinatra, you, you don't bring in a second singer to sing with Frank Sinatra.
1: Exactly. <laughs> so uh, Ray Shero took over and he, his whole thing was we are going to be a sustainable operation in terms of like the hockey operation stuff. We are going to be, um, we're going to never get into cap trouble because we're going to develop our own talent we're going to capitalize on their uh, entry-level contract years sub- bridge the gap between player development and you know when they're ready when they're superstars with some aging veterans ro- role players on short-term contracts. This is how you are successful in the in the salary cap era. This is a good formula, but you have to hit on all of your draft picks and the problem was was that devils were not Lou and his, Former scouting director David Conti, uh, somebody in the Devils organization told me, um, you know, Conti lost his fastball. They didn't hit on a lot of their their high draft picks in in some later years. Well, and then Ray Shiro came in, and some of his draft, his first round draft picks, they're still waiting for them to to hit. I mean, they've become decent NHL. Pavel Zaka has become a you know a, a good third line center second or third line center but but he's not the the superstar that you want your first round pick to be and I love Pav he's a great guy and a really hard worker and I sometimes don't think they've like set him up for success all the time but um you know I, I think their player development needed some overhauling and they got to that point but the owners didn't really like how how long it was taking Um, Mm -hmm. and when it does take a while, you know, what ends up happening is, is you get some clashes in management. Like we saw this year when, um, you know, this was a last year was a down year for the devils. There were some heightened expectations after the 2018 playoffs,
0: um,
1: but they didn't really make a lot of moves to supplement their roster. They did not wade deep into free agency at all, which that is I mean, that's not a bad move to stay away from overpriced free agents who want long term deals who are a little bit older. That's not a bad move. But they were a team that really could have used one or two solid veteran players to complement some of the more inexperienced guys that they had. They were really, really thin on the blue line and they knew it. So last year they go and they trade for P.K. Subban, right? Big yep. splashy move. He had a horrible year. Yeah. Taylor Hall's coming off the knee injury. He has a slow start. Um, talking to some of the leadership in the locker room this year, you know, they they didn't want the team to get used to losing because they say that winning's contagious. Well, losing can be just as contagious, and you get into this funk of like you you sort of settle for you just sort of settle for losing. I, I've talked to so many baseball players who say that when they're slumping at the plate, they it's because they can't get out of the, the head space of, well, yeah, like I'm just not going to be good right now. That's just how it is. Um, yeah. You don't want to have that mentality. You don't want to slide into that mentality. Uh, and it, it happens in a locker room. It can sort of spread like relax a better term.
0: <laughs> right. Yeah. Um,
1: yeah. So at that point, what you have to do is you've got to do a mate. you have to shake something up big time. So they did. They fired John Hines, who then, he's a very, very good head coach, which is why he found a job right away in Nashville. Uh, and he's going to get a chance to, he's going to get a chance to sort of right his wrongs in the playoffs in Nashville. Uh, the Devils, they, I don't want to say that they didn't make moves when they should have made moves. I think that they were sort of waiting and waiting and waiting on some of these guys to come around and develop, and they didn't. And yeah. in that case, they maybe should have been a little bit more aggressive in some moves earlier on, before PK, before yeah. Jack Hughes.
0: Yeah, I, you know, it's and and it's interesting because I talked to you know I was still follow the team, and it was interesting. It's like politics, right? every politician who gets elected starts off deregulating a little bit to loosen up the economy. But the the question comes, you got to, you got to turn the faucet off at a certain point. And I think what, when, when the devils were at their height, Lou Lamarillo really knew how to kind of, you know, sometimes you get out early. Sometimes you trade a guy a year too early and he has a good year, but you've gotten the two or three prime years you're going to get out of him anyway. And that's something they missed. You know, they were bringing, you know, When, you know, from about 95 to 2005, they'd bring a guy up from the minors and he would jump in right away and get integrated to the team because they had that strong organization, as they say, you know, the Canadians say. And (laughs) once Stevens and the Niedermeyers and the Danicos and the Brodeurs were no longer there, it was harder to integrate. And then just as you're saying two things happened you know people said conti lost his fastball but you know they had a bunch of their scouts and middle mid mid level execs plucked by other teams you know um one of the main guys at vegas was was one of the guys um, he took some guys with him when he went to toronto so uh, that was unfortunate like as a fan to see but other t- other teams have gone through this and been able to get back, you know, back on their feet. And the Devils simply really haven't. And I, you know, it's just there's no other way to su- do it. Is there just haven't been a very good, a very well run organization. I wanted to ask you, what did you think about Lindy Ruff getting hired? Uh,
1: that one surprised me a little bit. I I thought that maybe they would go the the trend in coaching this is probably why I've ended up covering hockey and baseball, because you don't think that maybe they're, they're so similar because they're not similar sports, but they are run really similar. Mm-hmm. The trend in baseball for the last few years has been to hire younger, more like analytically minded managers. Well, now we're seeing that trend in hockey as well. Um, and I, I thought that maybe they would go with somebody who a co uh, an assistant coach who, I don't know, maybe was just some like rising star yeah. And I didn't think that they and maybe someone with Lindy doesn't have the name value, the name brand as that he did a few years ago. Uh, I right. didn't know that they, I, I just didn't expect them to go with um, a veteran like that. Like I, I expected them to go with a laviolette or a galant or, you know, I, I thought Elaine Nazardine did a great job. And I, yeah. I would have really liked to see what Naz did with a better roster because all these fans like to point to, like to say like, Oh, you know, fire. Cause this is what Lou did. Lou treated coaches as if they were disposable toothbrushes. Right. You know, they lose C- games, civil so, servants,
0: oh, C- C- civil servants. Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah.
1: You're out. Yeah. So the, the devil's fan base has been conditioned to think that if things are going wrong, the only, the only logical option is to fire the coach. It cannot possibly be the player's fault. It can't possibly be management's fault. It's the it's the head coach. You fire the head coach if things are going wrong, which is not how you build a culture. You need a coach there for a long period of time to be able to bring some stability. And Lou wasn't there. Ray Shiro wanted to build some a sustainable franchise. And, you know, John, he wanted he picked John Hines because he wanted the team to be able to grow as John Hines grew. And we did see that happen, I think. but I th- honestly, I think the worst thing that happened to that team was that they made the playoffs in 2018. They were not ready. They were and they were, they were exposed. When they got to the playoffs and they played Tampa, it was, it was very clear that their roster was not a playoff roster. And trying to convince the fans though that it was not the pl- it was not a playoff roster it was difficult. I mean, the people who were at fault were the people who construct the roster. Yes, there is a certain amount of onus on the players, but nobody saw Corey Schneider breaking down as quickly as he did. You know, um, it, the, the blue line has been thin for a while. And, I mean, they if they were in, 2000, in 2018. I'm trying, to, I'm trying to go back and think. When I first jumped on, I had like five games left in the regular season. They had John Moore to kind of bridge the gap a little bit. Their, their forward lines were pretty – they didn't have a lot of depth scoring. They had a really good – they had Taylor Hall's line, which did all the scoring. They had a really, really good checking line with Blake Coleman and Travis Zajac. And then they had Brian Boyle on the back end. But, like, that's not that's not a championship roster. That's not a championship team. They overachieved that year, and the fan base was immediately thinking, we're back. And then they have a down year. Taylor Hall gets hurt. And then they get the, the lottery pick and they get, uh, they get they get P.K. Subban, who's on the downside of his career, but he's still P.K. Subban. And uh, then you get Nikita Gusev in the offseason as well. And all these fans. I mean, I was getting emails and tweets from fans who were saying, why won't you just write that the Devils are back? Why won't you write that the rebuild is over? Why won't the media write that the rebuild is over? Because you can't write that the, me- the rebuild is over until the season starts. And the season was pretty terrible. It started off pretty awful. Yeah. <laughs> I mean they blew a four-goal lead in their first game.
0: I mean, um, not, not, not to get not to get all WFN on you, Abby, but let them win a playoff series, and then yeah. we can say they're back. Then we exactly. can say they're back. You know
1: exactly. But these yeah. fans got really excited because they're used to they're they're not used to these down years. This isn't what they were accustomed to. They grew up with a sustainable team that won like consistently, you know, like this, but this had to be, this was a complete tear down job. You had, sometimes you have to tear it down. Now the question is, do you tear it down now or do you tear it down again? How much further can you tear it down? I think they have some pieces in place, but what I do like is that, you know, they're, they took the interim tag off Tom Fitzgerald and before they took the interim tag off, I asked Fitzy a few months ago, I asked him at the trade deadline. I said, what's the timeline? Honestly, what's the timeline? And he said we're not going to be contending for championships next year, or probably the year after that. We have the pieces in place to be competitive in the next few years, and we will grow with our young. We'll build around our young players like Nico and Jack. But we're not going to be contending for championships next year. That is not what the fans wanted to hear at all. That right. is. I mean, when I wrote that story, there was yeah. some. There was some serious. You got some
0: heat. Market. You got some heat on that.
1: Yeah. I did. And, and, you know, Fitzy got some heat from the fans too, but he has a clear vision of how to run this team. And I, you know, the owners, Josh and David are, they took the interim tag off of him and they are giving him some leeway to, they like his vision as well. You know, it's Rome Uh, wasn't built in the day. And unfortunately there's been some setbacks with this team and everybody wanted the rebuild to be over, but like you said, win a playoff series, get into the playoffs and win a playoff series. series and then, yeah. then you can say that the rebuild's over, but until then, I mean, they've, that team really had that. The roster's still really thin that route, that blue line that they,
0: <laughs>
1: yeah, yeah, it's real thin.
0: <laughs> we just, just hit 60 minutes. So I do, there's a couple things I want to still run by you. So we'll do it. We'll do it real quick. I just wanted to mention about Lindy. It reminds me a little bit of the Pat Burns hire, course the roster was way better when they got pat burns i mean in 2002 and they ended up winning in 2003 um i want to talk to you a little oakland hip-hop with you so <laughs> so you know you got your you got your mac dre you got your too short you got your intelligent hoodlum i think you can count I think they're bare I mean, you can count diggable planets there well one of the things i like about you abby is i can say too sh- i can reference too short with you and you know it's not about you that it's about uh, oakland yes
1: <laughs> and it should have a dollar sign
0: yeah, there you go. There you go. But when, uh, so when did you pick that up? Was that a college thing? Was it a high school thing? Uh, when did you become a fan of, uh, of Oakland Bay Area hip hop?
1: I mean, I, I became a fan of West Coast hip hop in general, Oakland and, and yeah. um, Southern California. Uh, in, I don't know, like, I guess all growing up. Like, I remember one time I had um, a Snoop Dogg cassette tape that a friend had given me that she got from her older sister. I think I was in like sixth, seventh grade. I guess I must've been in middle school because I was riding the bus and my mom took it away because it wasn't one of the, you know, ones that was um, edited out all right. the explicit words. Um, still dig the G funk sound from the '90s in, you know, yeah. Compton, Long Beach that area. I, I just, I was in, I grew up in California. I'm a California kid. I, I, I liked the beats. Uh, I, I, wasn't until years later when I was starting to like <laughs> really listen and pay attention to what they were saying, mm-hmm. but. You just can't. You, those beats are, I don't know, they're like, they're just kind of addictive. They're like, they're yeah. Hey, the rhythm <laughs> is
0: the rhythm is the bass, and the bass is the treble. That's all. Exactly. That's all you need to know. Um, yeah. So Folsom is Sacramento area, so yes. it's not really the Bay Area. But did you gravitate toward? Because I know you were. You, you you tweeted a picture of yourself like I think you're about ten wearing Oakland A's stuff. Were you yeah. an Oakland A's <laughs> fan? Giants, like how did that how did that go? Um,
1: my dad liked both.
0: Right. He
1: liked both the A's and the Giants. Uh, we never really paid much attention to the Raiders. It was always we were always like a 49ers household and the Sacramento Kings, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, but in terms of baseball, his all of his, my dad moved to California when he was in high school, and all his buddies were Giants fans. Um, but he lived for a little while in Vallejo. And then when he was working at the radio station, when he was working at he he really liked the Bash Brothers before, you know, we knew what they were doing behind the scenes. My, he taught my brother and I, instead of high fiving, he taught us to bash when we were little.
0: Oh, that's great parenting. That's <laughs> yeah, <exactly>. great parenting. <laughs> um,
1: and I, he just he really liked both baseball teams because I think being in Sacramento, it didn't you didn't have to choose yeah an alliance and the bear like california is just so laid back it's it's different mm-hmm. than new york where you absolutely have to be a mets fan or a yankees fan and there's no in between All um right. and i don't know i don't know i think we got we got free tickets to ace games because we never got free tickets to giants games my we i would go to i remember going to candlestick a few times when i was really little with my dad's best friend Mm -hmm. who passed away recently. And I remember like just being so cold and the wind hitting my face and like, it felt like needles. It must've been like six years old going to candlestick. And then I remember going to A's games and sitting way up in like Mount Davis and it was really hot. And I I just, I remember when I was wondering like why you couldn't just be comfortable at a baseball game in the Bay area.
0: (laughs) Um you, you mentioned uh, Long Beach State, which is your alma mater. Um, any comment on, so they're not the 49ers anymore, they're getting rid of Prospector Pete, it's going to be the Sharks or the Beach now. Any thoughts on that? Or is it just kind of like, I guess it's their decision to, to move on?
1: Well, they, I mean, they're not going to get rid of the dirt bags, so that's important. No,
0: yeah. <laughs> uh, they better not. Yeah.
1: I mean, I have a lot of thoughts on... of the mascot controversy that we're we're going through to begin with um but the 49ers i don't know i guess i I probably need to do a little bit more research on some of the arguments either way um you know i'm a little bit removed being on the east coast right now i i kind of forgot that they were going to be the shark don't don't be the sharks like don't replace the mascot just be the beach i guess like just be the that's unique you know so did you? Can you, Kraken. you can be the beach.
0: Yeah. Did you ever chat with like Vargas or McNeil about being a dirt bat? Like, because you know, they're Long Beach. You know, Jeff McNeil from oh, Long. Oh yeah. Uh, uh,
1: yeah. both of them. Um, yeah, I've I talked to Jeff McNeil several times, and then last year um, the Mets had Drew Gay on as well. Oh uh, yeah, Ganyo. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so I when I was a when I was doing play-by-play for Long Beach State. Um, I was told to say his last name as Gagnon but then in huh. New York it was suddenly Gagno um, yeah, so, yeah. No, I, I, uh,
0: I have I have I, the best one of the best games I ever called was drew Gagnon against uh, Matt Andres and I was told Gagnon and then eventually the next year or something the end disappeared so yeah. I'm with you. I'm, uh, with you there. I'm with you there
1: so yeah I've talked to, I've talked to them several like Jeff McNeil's a great guy um, we've had many interesting talks about you know, our nights on second street in Long Beach <laughs> and it's walking up to the Jack in the box drive-thru and knocking on the window to get tacos. Um, <laughs> so the rite of passage for everybody who went to Long Beach, um, he's, you know, the Mets have some really good personalities on the team right now between him and Pete Alonzo. Uh, they've got a decent young core and you know, Jacob deGrom spends a lot of time with David Wright and Jacob has really taken on a lot of the leadership qualities of David and I think despite what goes on upstairs in Flushing the Mets are in a good spot with some of their younger players and Dom Smith too he's a great guy he's an LA kid um he went to Sarah Sarah. yeah yeah he went to Sarah great guy I think that the Mets for how dysfunctional they are they've they've got some quality um players on the team and you know, I'd like to think that at least part of that is because one of them is a dirt bag. <laughs>
0: yeah. um, you, you mentioned, you don't know, play by play. Um, that's something that you would open the door to if, you know, if it's, it's kind of a big topic amongst the broadcast, you know, uh, fraternity. It really is a fraternity. Uh, more and more women getting opportunities to do play by play, you know, baseball, minor leagues. There's a number of them now doing play by play. Uh, if, w- is that an opportunity you would chase or if the opportunity presented itself, that's something you would have any interest in?
1: I mean, I don't think I was very good at, it. <laughs> um, some of the moms liked me because they were like, it's so great to hear a woman on the radio instead of a man all the time. Yeah. I don't think I was particularly good at it though. Um, I, you know, I, if somebody came to me and said, I think with some coaching, you could be really good. Then I think I would, I would definitely stay open to it. Um, at this point in my life, though, this is going to sound really bad because in sports, we're taught that, like, you know, to work in this industry, you have to be able to pick up and move at any time. And I'm kind of tired of doing that. I'm 34 and I've lived all over the country, and I don't like picking up my life and starting over every few years. Um, I, I'm at a point in my life where it, that's just not, I don't know that I. I don't know that I'm hungry enough to do that anymore. I think I have a lot to offer in terms of what I'm capable of doing and how I cover sports and how I can tell stories through different mediums. Um, But, and I don't want to say that means like all, you know, Oh, I'm not going to move. I'm never going to move again. I just don't know that I have it in me to keep moving every few years to do something that may not quite pan out. Um, mm-hmm. yeah. And doing play-by-play would probably mean going to a small town for a little while, and you know, doing wearing a lot of hats as they tend yeah. to do. And and I think there are a lot of broadcasters who have been climbing the ladder, and I don't want to like. I don't want to be like a Tim Tebow and just drop in and take somebody's spot who really deserves it. But if somebody were to come to me and say, I think you could be really great at this with some coaching, I would, I would obviously listen.
0: Well, I'll I'll, I'll extend this invitation. If we ever play college baseball again, and I'm doing a game in long beach, you have an open invitation. Come do the middle three. I, I'll, <laughs> I, I just want you there. So if something weird happens, I can say that's baseball, Abby. Yeah. So.
1: <laughs> I'll have to tell Susan Waldman that. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So, um, uh, no, it, it is, it is interesting. You know, with just, with the, the whole thing with the Washington, the football team, um, they a woman's going to be picking their, their broadcast team. So, uh, that's the other thing, you know, there, I guess it's happening in, in, with the Clippers as well. You have these kind of media executives really looking at that now. And the, you know, there's a lot of, a, you, you fit a lot of the profiles cause you've covered so many of these teams, um. Before I let you go, I do want to bring up the notion of how because because, you know, your tweets are pretty, pretty much sports related, but you will mix in kind of the social issues every once in a while. Um, Are we to a point now where as people working in sports media, are we not ever going to be able to separate from that anymore? Or Do you think it'll ever go back to where people will go back to the sticks, you know, the stick to sports thing?
1: If we're singing the national anthem or, you know, if there's a national anthem playing before a game, is anyone sticking to sports? Have we ever really stuck to sports or was that just sort of
0: that's the narrative, um, though?
1: Exactly. You're competing for your country in the Olympics. You know, um, there are a a lot of things that I think if you go back in history, people will see, oh, maybe we really haven't been sticking to sports. But people are always going to especially right now. This is such a weird time. We're on news overload um nobody wants to hear nobody everybody wants a distraction well that's great if you want a distraction then watch netflix because these players are using their platforms to bring awareness to these things and like i've had this conversation with people who think that they should do it on their own time guess what protests are not done quietly you can't have an effective protest by protesting by yourself in your own apartment with the windows closed and the, blo- and the, the curtains closed. That's not effective. Protests are uncomfortable. They make people uncomfortable because that's how you get change. And these players are trying to bring awareness to social issues by using their platform. And to say like, oh, well, why can't they do it when they're done playing baseball? Well, here's why. Because I can't, uh, me as a beat writer, I can't always make it to their charity events. When they're trying to raise awareness for something, I can't always make it. And maybe the, and then the team people, the team people don't want to, they don't want to touch a charity event that's, uh, you know, about or them protesting to defund the police. That's not something mm-hmm. that the team PR or the team Twitter account is, we're seeing a few now who are, who are starting to promote those things. And look, I credit the devils knowing that they play in Newark and really doing some great things for the Newark community and highlighting the, the peaceful protests, um, I, I really, I think that they, they, wa- they have a fine line to walk and they walked it well without caring that fans were going to say, um, you know, stick to sports, stick to sports. Because at this point, if you, if you don't say anything, um, like you're silent, you're complicit with silence and you can't, you don't get changed by being quiet and doing it, you know, outside of working hours sometime and I know all these people like to sit here and say, oh, well, you know, if I went into my accounting job and I said that, um, you know, they should defund the police, then I'd get fired. Okay, well, you know, you also don't sit with your hand over your heart and sing the national anthem before you sit down at your desk every day at your accounting job. You cannot compare the two situations. They are using their platform to spread their messages of social awareness and try and bring about change. They're going to do it. Before a game, during a game, after a game, because that's when the cameras are on. That's when people are going to see. That's when people are going to – that's when the, the different – they're going to be able to make a difference and reach people. So I don't think we can – I don't think we ever really have stuck to sports. I really don't.
0: I mean the best way I, I always explain it is, you know, Harry in accounting, when his work falls off, they're going to keep him around for a couple of years. You know, he there's no – you know, because everybody likes Harry. He's been around the company forever. When Jacob deGram can't get anybody out, he is done. Yeah. He is done with the Mets with anybody. So they're not you can't really compare your job to theirs, you know? I mean, I mean I like to think I'm pretty good at what I do, but you know what? I could take a shell on the beach in Santa Monica, throw it, hit seven people who could probably be just, you know could come in, do the job that I do, and you wouldn't know there's any fall off. That's not the case in Major League Baseball or, or NHL or, or, you know, or, or the or the NBA.
1: It, no, it's true. And I think to tell anybody, you know, stick to, stick to accounting. Yeah. <laughs> stick to sports. <laughs> I, I think it's somewhat dehumanizing because we're all humans who have thoughts and emotions and feelings. And we are at a time in our history where, we don't just want to bring change. We understand people are understanding that they need to take action to bring change and they're tired of the status quo and they're going to to tell them, you know, Oh, you're, um, you know, you're a bad Patriot because you are kneeling during the national anthem before a baseball game. Um, I, you need to, shut up and play baseball. I think that's very dehumanizing. I just do. I think to you know to tell me to stick to sports is dehumanizing because guess what? I'm a human and I have feelings on on West Coast rap, not just
0: on. Hockey. <laughs> uh, last thing for you, I'm gonna frame it as, as a scenario. so you're you're riding in an elevator for sixty seconds. A recent a woman who's recently graduated from college wants to get into sports media in sixty <laughs> seconds. What do you tell her?
1: Don't do it. <laughs>
0: <laughs> very good
1: I oh, I don't know it such a tough one because we're just at such a strange point what do you
0: what do you wish somebody had told you when you got into it I don't
1: know um I was given a lot of it. I, I sat when I covered baseball when I, for the student newspaper in college. I sat there all weekend and I listened to Bob Kaiser, who you know used to be the columnist for the Long Beach yeah. Press-Telegram. I know Bob. And Bob, Bob yeah. told me every weekend two things about this business. Never get married <laughs> and don't write for a newspaper. Um, well, I still haven't gotten married, but I, I, I have written for newspapers now and, and I've been laid off. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, but, you know, I was in TV and I got laid off from TV as well, so it, I, I, I don't know. I don't want to discourage anybody from getting into it, but it, it, um, I don't know that I could encourage anybody to get into it right now either because I, there's just not a lot of opportunities and the lifestyle may not be right for everybody. Um, you know, I, I, you work a lot. You don't make a lot of money a lot of the time. Um, you, it's hard to feel valued at times in your workplace. And no matter how much some of these, I've had really great bosses and I've had some really bad bosses. No matter how many how many times the great ones try and make you feel valued, the fact is is that you know when you When you're just sort of laid off unceremoniously or the people above you um, tell you that you can't travel anymore, you don't feel valued when you're when your pay is cut or you're furloughed. You don't feel valued. And I think everybody wants to know that um, they're working hard for a reason. I mean, I I'm not going to walk into a place and say, I need you to value me right now. I want my I want to be valued with the work that I put in for the work that I put in. Um, And I I don't know that right now there's a lot of, it's just, I don't know, it's difficult. I don't want to encourage anybody, but I or I don't want to discourage anybody, but it would be very hard for me to encourage anybody right now. Uh, I would say (sighs) seek out a couple mentors because you're going to question yourself a lot in this business. And you need mentors who are going to be equal parts, realistic, but also encouraging. They're going to be realistic and tell you that you screwed up when you screwed up but they're going to encourage you that it's one time and you, you can grow and learn and get past it. And, um, you're, a lot of the bosses that you have are going to be sort of overwhelmed, overburdened. You're going to, you're out on so much about this right now is like, you're out on an Island by yourself. And you other than you're not getting a lot of direction. You have to be very, you know, self-motivated and self-sufficient, which is great for me because I'm, I'm a pretty independent worker Um, but there's times when you're going to question yourself, you're going to question your work and you're going to question like, uh, this source didn't call me back. Did I say the wrong thing? And you need a strong mentor to be able to tell you, uh, you know, keep, be patient. And here's the next thing that you, here's the next step in trying to salvage this story or here's what you're missing. Go chase this angle. You need a strong, you need some strong mentors who will, support you when you start to question yourself.
0: Hey, Abby, I appreciate you sitting down with me. Thank you for taking the time out. Well, we didn't get to the LA-New York food comparison. <laughs> I'll have to schedule you again to do that. But no, I, I, a lot of great information here. Thank you for kind of being very candid, and very open about about all your experiences, particularly uh, in New York. And good luck. I know the, the, jo- the job hunt's going to turn for you at some point.
1: Well, thanks. I appreciate it. It was good to catch up with you
0: absolutely and good luck and hopefully maybe 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 if the big west ever plays again i'll I'll see you back on the big west beat at some point
1: (laughs) well the people at the big west were great that was a fun time
0: yeah abby mistraco thank you very much
1: thank you